Hello and welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. WA Real brings you real and authentic stories from fascinating people here in Western Australia. Stories to inspire and equip you to take action to be all you can be. Today, my guest is former child psychotherapist, business owner, and mother of three, Jennifer Jackson. Born and raised in WA, Jenna's worked in London, Perth, and Melbourne in child's mental health and welfare as a social worker and then as a child psychotherapist before taking the decision to become a full-time mother. Already an avid supporter of children's literature and art, Jen took the opportunity presented to her when all three children reached primary school age to reimagine herself in a new career as owner of a children, uh, owner of children's bookshop, Paper Bird, which is on Henry Street in Fremantle, alongside other independent bookshops, creating a literary precinct in the West End of Fremantle. A dedicated story house, Paper Bird has evolved around the bookshop with writers, storytellers, and illustrators on hand, as well as workshops, kids' books clubs, animation screenings, book launches, and discussion panels to make for a dynamic children's cultural hub. Jen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Cool. So as I said in the introduction, you were born and raised here in Western Mm. Australia. So can you tell us a bit about what it was like to grow up here in WA? I understand that you also grew up in Perth, but you also spent time on a farm down in Albany in the Polgroves. Yeah, I think I had the privileged position of growing up on the beaches of Perth but also having this retreat to the the big trees down in the Prongrups um, where my folks have a farm. Um, my dad was a farmer and then he decided to become a doctor and he moved up to the city. So I grew up living and going to school in the city but having this connection to the farm still which we kept going. And um, and that's been amazing to have that connection to land and to have all the history there because he grew up there and his father grew up there. So it was this really um, long-standing history within the Prongerups. Um, but growing up in Perth is just brilliant. It's just amazing. It is, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Beaches yeah. and activity and outdoor lifestyle. It is. And it's you don't appreciate it so much until you move away from it. You know, when you're growing up here, it's kind of you just feel like that's it and, it's, you know, yeah. there's all these other places to explore and surely they're more exciting and better and, you know, more productive or whatever. But, yeah, you do find that a lot of people move away from Perth and then come back. Yes. Yeah. Um, during your childhood, were, um, was reading and literature and arts a big part of that? Massive, yeah. 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 And who influenced you with that? Mainly my mum. Um, she was a teacher and then she became a children's librarian in schools um, when I was at school. And um, But she was just, you know, prolific reader and always had this constant stream of books coming home for us to vet for um, libraries and um she was just really in touch with what was going on in the children's literature world. and um, But we kind of just took it for granted. But we always had stories read to us by that was kind of my routine with my father because he worked long hours was that he would come home kind of after we'd eaten dinner, but he would read the bedtime story. Right. And then that was kind of our connection point. So it became, you know, a really special thing for us. Yeah. And my mum's family uh um, her father was Irish 
and they're big storytellers and um, they Spend all like to have a yarn. yarn. Yeah. <laughs> and, they, and a lot of her brothers became writers um, of more like family history kind of things and histories of shires and um, places. But, yeah, it just seems like it's in the blood kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So as you grew up, you you first started out in uh, children's mental health and wealth as a social worker and a psychotherapist. Mm. Um, what, what drew you to that and how did you get into that? Um, I always loved working with kids. I find them energising and um, they have a cheekiness and freedom that adults don't get away with, that kids can get away with, and it's kind of refreshing. And um, you never know really what's around the corner with them, you know, and, and they also, working in um, child protection services and um, mental health, there did seem to be um, more motivation for change when you're working with younger kids than you do with older people. And so it, that motivation coming from the kids, from everybody, from everybody, everybody's so much more invested in change if there's problems occurring. Hmm. And so instead of just working with the individual person, you're working with the whole network. And I guess coming from a social work background where community is a really big, important factor in, in, um, people's understanding of people's social well-being, um, being able to work with kids means that the whole community is involved in their recovery or their um, better health. So right. you're working with their parents and their extended family and their school and their childcare or whatever. So everybody that's involved with them is involved in their treatment plan. And so it's um, it's much more dynamic kind of work. You know, yes. you're not just seeing a person once a week um, right. over a long time, and that's all you see to work with you kind of getting out and going to schools and you know seeing their whole system so um i really love that and when i was working in london i was working in a hospital there in um more in the child protection side of the hospital um and then i kind of came across the child psychotherapist there and that's a really big um industry over there compared to in australia because child psychotherapy kind of originated in Europe mm. and it was more about finding out about people's backgrounds and how they're influenced into, you know, doing was what that they the, do. that the underlying sort of premise of the psychotherapy of looking at the whole The whole, yeah, network and, and all your inner thoughts and feelings instead of it being just working with what you're presenting with. It's You're looking at generations and you're looking at, you know, unconscious elements of people's motivations to doing things. And so it's just it's just really fascinating kind of field and I love it. So I got involved in um, working with child psychotherapists over there and then when I moved back to Australia, I thought I really want to become a child psychotherapist and the only training that there was was in Melbourne. Right. So I moved to Melbourne to do the training and that's where um, I um, ended up having children and and becoming a child psychotherapist. So you were married before you went to Melbourne? No, I married when I was living in Melbourne but um, I ended up marrying a Perth boy. <laughs> so it was <laughs> kind of convenient. <laughs> yeah. No. So I actually met him before I moved over, but we weren't um, really together. We just met while he was on holiday here. 
I happened to be going over to do a master's in child psychotherapy. He was doing a master's over there in law and um, he'd been living there for a few years. And so we ended up getting together over there and then had children and then moved back to Perth. Right. I guess um, whilst you talk about working with children being very energising, if you're dealing with child protection and stuff like that, there must have been some pretty dark stuff. How did you personally deal with that? Yes, there, there's a lot it, of dark stuff. Because with children, it's, it's yeah. like either, I find either it's either super light yeah. or the stories where it's horrible. Yeah, yeah, horrible and super dark. Yeah. And it wasn't the kids that created the distress so much was as the system and how the system kind of perpetuated. Right. They're being stuck in abusive situations and, and the frustration that's involved with working in court systems and dealing with multiple generational abuse and and trying to find the least detrimental alternative to kids' care mm. when you're trying to keep them with families and keep their connections up with people. So, yeah, it, it was really tough work and I could completely understand people's um, uh, the, the fact that there was an attrition rate of <laughs> child protection workers that was, I think, the, the norm was about three months in the system and, right. you know, because a lot of people it's just not for them and it's, you know, and the ones that do stay, um, you know, it, there's a certain amount of trauma that you take on hmm. with working in that system. Do you and want you to go an amount of counselling and support yourself? You well, remember? initially I didn't have the option. I didn't really recognise it as an option. Um, it was you just toughened up basically. Yes. Um, but then as I became more skilled and more and did more study, I realised that in order to stay in the system you had to get some personal um support and counselling and, and one of the big factors of doing child psychotherapy is one of the requirements is that you're in psychoanalysis yourself yes through the period of the training um which kind of blew me away initially because i thought geez that's kind of heavy like i don't feel like i have enough material to kind of be in therapy for that long but it was as much an experience of being on the other side and um sorting out your own shit to being um, uh, trained in, you know, the technique. So it was really valuable. I was, yeah. I was really amazed at how valuable it was, you know, because you kind of think, oh, you know, I'm the helper. I'm not the person that needs I'm help. I'm all right. Yeah. I'm okay. And then you open I've up had the box. The, and I've then- had the privilege of having a really stable family and I shouldn't drain the resources, you know. I shouldn't be spending my money on this. I should be spending my money on something a bit more productive or whatever. So I did feel like, you know, it was a waste of resources for me to go into therapy. And and it was quite confronting, I think, for my family for me to go into therapy because they started getting really anxious about, you know, that I'd kind of make have to make stuff up or that I'd have to kind of find problems where there weren't problems and then I'd become neurotic and, you know, you know that yeah they they found it quite bizarre that I would go into mm. psychoanalysis when I didn't have problems. But right. It, I highly recommend it for anyone that's going into kind of helping professions. Yeah, because everyone has has shit to deal with. You know, yeah. so everyone's human, and and if you can't go through life without having some form of um, 
traumatic experience or issue or even if it's minor, you know, you've got everyone trying to work out who they are and yeah, what to do and, you know, how to be the best person they can be and where to find happiness and all that stuff. So. Yeah, I guess to the point you brought out, you know, you felt privileged that you had this stable, nice uh, family life and obviously you're seeing people that don't. It's easy to compare one against the other. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, everybody's subjective experience is their yeah. own. Yeah. And how they deal with it. And there might be sticking points in there. Yeah. Everyone's got skeletons in their closet. And yeah, it's quite interesting when you start scratching the surface of yeah. who's, you know, where, yeah, where people come from. So, so it was a very beneficial experience. Absolutely. You personally, let alone learning the skills to take you forwards in your Absolutely. Job. And it gave me empathy for people in my family that had suffered you know, and had kind of got on with it because that was what they did in those days. And um, and to actually go back and check in with them and say, actually, you didn't have to get on with that, you know, that trauma, you know, you could talk to people mm. about it and, you know, then hopefully it won't kind of repeat because you've kind of pushed it down. Yeah. So, yeah, it was useful. Yeah. Super. So, it, we were at the point of being in Melbourne and then you've come back to Perth. Um, were you still working in the same area here in Perth? So when I um, left Melbourne, I was working at the Children's Hospital and uh, I was working on a program that was um, introducing mental health services to child protection, the child protection industry. So it was kind of this crossover between health and, and it kind of was where I was always working, but it was kind of the first time that had been done in Australia where it was a dedicated mental health service for child protection kids. And um, and through that work, which was with Berry Street Victoria and the Children's Hospital, um, I took on a PhD, which was looking at um, <clears throat> infant mental health and putting in an early intervention to help um, parents that were high risk to hopefully keep their babies through um, a home visiting service, psychotherapy service, which um, helped them become more attuned to their baby. And um, so I started that PhD at Melbourne University and then got pregnant and then I uh, had a break and then went back to it and then um, then we, with the second baby I decided I needed to come back to Perth and that was quite a difficult decision because we had such an awesome life in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. Everything was going right. You know, we had great careers. Henry, my husband, had gone to the bar and become a barrister and was doing really well, had a great network there, loved his work, loved our where we lived, we could he could ride to work in ten minutes, and it was just up the road from Melbourne Uni, and we had a great network of friends, um, but we didn't have any family there, and I felt really landlocked. It was that kind of connection to land thing that I struggled with. Right. We had lovely, like we tried to make the most of it. We had connection to land in this beautiful um, environmental park called Ceres, where we were heavily involved in. Um, the markets and Henry was teaching beekeeping and there was a beautiful kind of creek and we'd spent a lot of time there, down there with the kids, but I really missed 
seeing the horizon. I felt like I couldn't actually look past buildings and trees and, and it just, I, I started feeling quite claustrophobic and it was right. right at the time when they had the really bad bushfires in Melbourne, Black Saturday. I was five months pregnant with my second child and it was this shocking heat wave and it was just like doomsday because the sky went black and red and it was just horrific. And we were lying on the floor of the National Gallery under the stained glass windows and everyone was just like lying around, just hundreds of people just lying on the floor because it was just to get into air conditioning and everyone's kind of needed to be together. Like you felt like we could have just stayed home and put the air conditioning on, but we were kind of drawn into the city mm. because we felt like something really terrible was happening, but we didn't really know how bad it was at that yeah, point. there was an energy there. There was such an energy and everyone just kind of gravitated into the city and everyone was like lying out on the floor of the National Gallery. And then the change came through and we all went out and the sky was just with just crazy colours and there was kind of a relief that the the change had come through. But that was the moment when all the fires turned and there was just destruction because mm. people didn't realise they were going to turn and destroy villages and things. And um, and I just and it was I suppose I was vulnerable because I was pregnant with small children and that. Yeah. But I felt really strongly that I needed to get back home, particularly to. Um, our farm and just the people and being able to look out on the ocean and connection to water and I just felt this really strong primal mm. urge to move back. And um, did, you, did your husband and share that? No. <laughs> no. So how did you broker that oh, conversation? God, it was terrible. So then we had to, um, <laughs> we, you know, I, I tried to go gently, gently, but it was kind of like, oh, you know, I think we need to move back. And he's like, no, why would you rock the boat? You know, it's, we've yeah. got a perfect here. We don't need anyone else. And um, and then I just kept on. And and then we got to a point where the second baby was born, Odetta, and we went for a holiday up to Queensland and we had this camper van thing and we got to Cape Tribulation and Henry was trying to work at the same time. So he was in trying to finish off a case and he was kind of sitting in the annex of this thing and there was just this torrential downpour and we were um, we couldn't get out of the Cape Tribulation because it was all um, all the roads were closed off and and we were, I was in this camper van with these two little kids and he was trying to work in the annex and and he just completely lost the plot about you know life and how much pressure there was on him and and I just woke up one night and he was just sitting on the edge of the bed with his hands and in head in his hands and he's like I just can't do this anymore and I just think it's crazy that you want to move back to Perth and la la la. Anyway, he had that kind of major meltdown. But then he kind of accepted the fact that he had he, he did have a choice, but it wasn't like he had to go. Like we had to go. I, I would not let it go. <laughs> right, you were like I would not let it back. go. I said, look, you know, just persistent child. <laughs> give it a year. I just need to get back. Just give it. Just let's do a year. It's like, but I can't like shift my practice for a year. I have to. I've got a business here. I have to close my business down and I have to restart completely from scratch in Perth. I was like, well, 
let's just give it a go. And, you know, anyway, he ended up coming to the party amazingly. Um, so marriage didn't break down, which is good. Which is good. <laughs> and so we gave it a year and um, it was quite strange because, you know, at the kind of three-month mark he was saying, oh, I just can't cope with this. We need to move back to Melbourne. But after a year it had completely shifted and I was saying, I can't handle it here. We need to move oh. back to Melbourne. And he was like, no, we're going to stay. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, you know, things and roundabouts, but I just felt like um, Perth wasn't going to meet my needs and I was missing my friends basically. I think I was just grieving for the life that we had in Melbourne and feeling like I couldn't make hmm. it again in, in Perth. And also I couldn't make it professionally in Perth. I felt like that. I couldn't, I'd looked into transferring my PhD. I'd met with people here that were kind of highlighted as potential supervisors and universities. And, and I realized that the institutions were too different. I couldn't transfer it and Melbourne Uni wouldn't let me do it externally because it was to embed it in the institutions in Melbourne. And so I kind of had to realise that I had to let it, let the PhD go or start a new, completely new thesis um, or go back to Melbourne and finish it off. And, that wasn't happening now because the husband's well entrenched. Yeah, so we're just like, oh. And we were in this little rental, which was um, fine, but it was kind of, really close and tiny little cottage and um, we knew we had to find we only had it for a year it was a friend's place and we had to find somewhere to live and it was, so it was that kind of do or die we either find a house in Fremantle or we go back to Melbourne and I said oh, it's, there was nothing around I was like we just got to go back to Melbourne and then I'll go back to my career otherwise I'm just going to have to find something else to do here completely and Henry just walked down um, Howard Street one day and our house was the house was on the market and he said, Jen, I just think you should just walk past this place and take a look and see if you think that might, like, whether that's somewhere where you could live. Um, I think you'll really like it. And I was like, nah, I just, I've given up. <laughs> no, right. The mind was and closed. Then, yeah, I was just, I'd kind of resigned myself to the fact that I'd, dragged him back for nothing and failed in moving back to Perth and <clears throat> and that we should all go back to Melbourne. But um, I did walk down Howard Street and um, went and had a look at the place and just thought, yep, this is us. We could live here and be really happy. And so we bought it and stayed mm. and it's worked out really well in the end. <laughs> so Fortunately. During that 12 months, had you done any um, sort of child welfare work during no. that time? No. No, I'd, I'd gone cold turkey on work and just hmm. focused on resettling the family yep. and getting my oldest child into school. And, um, yeah, so it yeah. felt quite nice actually to just be a mum and not have to juggle. Right. It was really nice. I felt like I was on holiday. And it was really nice just to kind of really slow down and really kind of live locally and just, yeah, do things at the kids' pace instead of 
forcing them to do things at my pace. So mm. that was really great. I love that. And so I ended up staying and doing that full time for because I had a third child. And so I really indulged, I guess, mm. in just going at their pace. Was there any point where you thought, oh, I want I kind of dabbled with sort of creative ideas. Idea for myself? Or? I did dabble with creative. And I guess that gave me the headspace to be a bit more creative mm. in coming up with what I might really want to do with my life, considering I had the opportunity to do something completely different. I'd kind of set myself on this trajectory of becoming an academic and <clears throat> becoming the best in my field in infant mental health and, you know, that was my thing. I'd done, you know, travel back and forth to Europe doing it and and it was really exciting and but it was kind of stressful as well. Mm. And, and I'd given myself the break when I had kids because I didn't really want to do the really heavy child protection kind of mental health mm. work whilst having babies of the same age, I felt like that would kind of interfere with my experience of being attuned to them and, and you know, not comparing them to every other baby. Um, yeah. So it was nice just to have a complete break and I just found instead of thinking about journal articles and statistics and work related to infant mental health that my mind was going more and more towards the arts right? and how much I appreciated my experience of the arts in Europe and in Melbourne, particularly with having little kids. I was really um, engaged over in Melbourne with art play and I'd gone and um, checked out the facility in Dublin called The Ark, which was what art play in Melbourne was based on. And it was so really excited about the idea of having a dedicated Space for children's arts. Mm. What, that it kind of what is art really play? resonated with me. Art play was um, a, so it's a building that's located behind the National Gallery, behind Federation Square, on the um, Birrungma, next to the Yarra, and it's this old. I think it was a pump house or something. Anyway, it's this beautiful old building, and they put this beautiful playground around it, and. Um, they use it for having artists' residence. So art, professional artists will come in and do a residency and they'll do a whole heap of workshops with kids around their particular art form and it can be all sorts of different art. But it's it's just got a really high integrity of um, art work and, it's, and the artists don't kind of um, change what they're doing just because mm. they're working with kids. Right. So they expect, so there's kind of a, um, yeah, they don't dumb it down, I guess. Mm. They don't get out the coloured pencils when they can use the paints that they normally use. And things can be done on a large scale because it's such a kind of large facility. So it's it just allows this amazing experience for children to be in contact with artists that are kind of at the at their prime, you know, that are really cutting edge. Right. Instead of getting kind of slotted into a corner of a gallery and given a table Some and pencils. And yeah, colouring in, which is often what happens with museums and galleries. Mm. There's a kid's corner and that's just to keep the kids quiet. You know, it's, not, to, it's not to engage yeah. the kids at all. So it's just, you know, it's 
amazing that this these people came up with this concept. Mm. And Dublin, it's more um, they have more drama involved. So they've got this stage that they do a whole heap of um, uh, performances and get kids involved. And it's this beautiful just terrace in Dublin, just looks like any other terrace, but it backs onto a square. And at the back, there's, so there's a theatre inside and they can open up the back and they can have performances out to the square at the back. So it's just oh. amazing. It's all crazy and kooky inside, so there's different floors with different weird stuff going on, which is so exciting. It's like a TARDIS for kids. Yeah. So, and there's there's kinds of concepts like this popping up all over the the world now and people recognising the importance of having dedicated spaces for kids and for artists to see it as a viable kind of place to be Mm. working, you know, that they get as much out of the excitement and and curiosity of the kids as the kids do. Mm. So they get ideas and because kids come up with the most wacky ideas and the artists can then cream them off and use them for their own work. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, everyone's, it's a feedback loop. Um, so when, I, when we moved back here and I found that the children's bookshops had closed down, which I was just, I mean, I knew that bookshops were suffering, but I just thought that was completely ridiculous because the fact that children's book sales hadn't suffered through that yes. loss of the industry why would the children's bookshops close down, you know? Yes. And um, and that there wasn't any kind of really dedicated kids' art spaces. There were some amazing programs going on with different festivals, like Awesome Festival and, and Fremantle Arts Centre had a great kids' program. And um, But I kind of thought well, it would be awesome to have a space like Art Play in Perth. So I kind of had the time when the kids were little to um, go and re- go around and see what yeah. was happening, talk to different artists and writers, children's book writers, and then I discovered that the children's book writing industry here is just so exciting at the moment. There's just so many people involved who are really dynamic and it's it's blew my mind that we had this microcosm in Perth of, you know, the population's so small compared to Sydney and Melbourne and yet we have this incredible industry that really didn't have a home or you know that didn't really have a space other than the state library to kind of exhibit their work and so I started talking to people in that group and they said yeah it'd be great to have um one a children's bookshop again and to a space where we can hold book launches and have artists working and um, yeah, so I, I then kind of narrowed it down to children's literature rather than it being all the arts. I thought it would be great to have a focus of children's literature as the kind of open door to an arts centre mm. because there's so much art in children's literature. So th- this thought process, is, is this going on over many years? Yeah, is this, it's probably um, what, what, what many your- years. Even when I was living in Melbourne, I was kind of curious about what, you know, whether Perth could sustain something like that. But I didn't, when I was living in Melbourne, I didn't Mm. kind of think, oh, you know, I'll do that in Perth one day. I thought, you know, Perth needs that kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah, niche in the market. Yeah, 
But it wasn't until I got back here that I thought, oh, yeah, it definitely does because I didn't have any place to take my kids and I really wanted them to hmm. have an experience of going to a children's bookshop and being in awe of children's literature. So then I kind of got come to the realisation that why shouldn't I do it? Hmm. <laughs> but that was tough. Because yeah, I was going to say, what was the tipping point? Well, Henry was Henry ideas. could see me being a bit agitated, and I kind of denied it for a while. He kept saying, "Do you think you should go back to work? What do you think you're going to do?" I was like, "No, so, I'm not so quite this, ready." So at this point, is is this how many how many of the children are, mm. are at primary school at this point? So two were at primary school at this point, and the third was at home still. Yes, and. So it was when Harry was about two or something when he when Henry started saying, "Why don't you think about you know going back to work?" And I was like, "No, I'm not going back to work. I'm having too much fun. <laughs> I'm playing with kids. <laughs> I like what I'm doing. It's really important." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not quite ready, but I did start like putting my feelers out to my old profession mm. about what opportunities there were, and I was really surprised because I kind of got grabbed back by that industry into doing a project. And I thought, well, this will be kind of a good tester for me to see whether I should go back doing a bit of part-time work in in child psychotherapy or in infant mental health in some context. And I'll try and be really controlled about it. I'll just do this one project and mm-hmm. see. Um, that'll give me an understanding of who's around and what the network is and what the institutions are like. And it was a really fascinating project of rolling out this new kind of core competency program in infant mental health. And it allowed me to go around to all the hospitals and uh. all the people that were involved in infant mental health and see what they were doing and see if they kind of met standards of infant mental health practice. But I completely failed dismally at the, at the job. And why was that? Um, it was a number of factors. It was my, it was, I, th- I do take some responsibility for being less than motivated to actually do a really quite bureaucratic job. Mm. But also, it was a f- the first time that this group had run this kind of project and it was just really badly structured. And so it was kind of run by this committee of about 12 people. So it was like management by committee. Now all trying to feed in to me, the only project, the only paid person in the committee, what they wanted the project to look like and how they wanted it to run. And it's just complete disaster. And I felt terrible about it because I couldn't do the job competently to meet what everybody wanted. And and then I started realising that I was going to become a scapegoat for the project failing because mm-hmm. I was responsible for it and I was an easy kind of because I wasn't really in the group and I felt like after just, after just kind of the first three months of structuring it, I just realised it wasn't going to work and I better get out quick. So I quit and... That's the first kind of job I'd ever quit and felt pretty crap about mm. that I wasn't able to kind of make it work, that maybe I didn't have the skills to do it. Um, I just It just knocked my confidence. Right. 
And it also kind of made me feel like I'd my relationships with those people in the industry also suffered because I hadn't managed to make it work. And so me getting back into that industry would then be tricky, mm. even if I came in at a clinical level or whatever, that it would just feel a bit weird. So that was a – anyway, that kind of motivated me to get out, I guess. Yeah, it wasn't so good. Mm. <laughs> I feel a bit bad about that. Yes. Um, and I hope that I, – I haven't really heard whether mm. they managed to get it going after that. But, um, yeah, I have a couple of connections with people who are in that industry who are going really well. Um so I, I've still kept my connections up with my Melbourne colleagues and I've still done a couple of different things with them. And I, I quite like, I'm still like a member of the Child Psychotherapy Association and I still keep in mm. touch. So I, f- I feel kind of all right with where my connection is with my past profession. Mm. But... Is, is, I feel like I need to move on. Yeah, it is what you're doing now. We'll, we'll come back to how mm. you actually made it happen. Is what you're doing now almost Jen's own expression of what she's learned and, and, and where she takes things now? Yeah, now it feels like I'm on my own terms now. Um, Still leveraging what you've learned. Yeah. But applying it in everything, your own creative Everything manner. has kind of come, I suppose, built to my my little creation. But that scares the hell out of me at the same time. I mean, it's kind of, you know, I feel that what I've taken on might be too big. But I had this realisation around the same time as finishing that project that it was a bit now or never, that I had this opportunity in my life where I wasn't tied down to a paid job where people had expectations of me to come to work and um and I also had um the privilege of not having to be the main breadwinner and that's a massive privilege mm. <laughs> because you how does that sit with you you wouldn't be able to do it otherwise well it's it's I feel really grateful for it but at the same time I'm I recognize that I'm not riding on the back of my husband's career, I've been a stay-at-home mum. His career's allowed me to be a stay-at-home mum and I've had to sacrifice my Mm. other professional career to do that even though I chose to do it and I love doing it. So I feel like I've earned it. Mm. But... Is that not also part of teamwork? Which yeah, is- it's a teamwork thing. And, and fortunately, my husband's very, um, very aware of, um, not putting himself out there as the. I go out and work, so you should as do the this. supporter. You know, oh, he, right. he's, he certainly feels like, you know, this is your money. It might be, it's, you know, it's, it might be the fact that I earn those particular coins, but it's your money to do with what you want. I mean, you, mm. you could spend it on education and <clears throat> getting back into your clinical career or setting up a clinic 
or you could choose to do with it whatever else you want. But the fact that you're not going to earn any money for the next five years, say, because you're setting up a small business, we can deal with that as a team. You know, Mm. when he went to the bar, he had to do that. So he wasn't earning any money whilst he set up his practice and I was working. And so it's a give and take, but Mm. it's, um, it's hard, you know, for couples, for one person to kind of not be bringing any money in and the other person too, because you do feel a responsibility to, (laughs) to share the load. But I, I do most of the child rearing and, you know, all of that. So, you know, what goes around comes around. (laughs) Indeed. So, um, so given the experience, the project that didn't go as well as it could have done, um, tell me how we went from there to now paper bird being yeah. a thing and a reality. So I'd, I'd kind of gathered up all this evidence to start up this business, but it scared the hell out of me to put all this money towards something that I didn't know was going to work. You know, I had my business model. I've got a brother who's who's done commerce and he helped me with the business plan and all Mm. that and it kind of you know looked okay on paper but I didn't know if it would work I I had kind of vague figures that other bookshop people had given me and and it did seem like an awful risk and I felt really physically sick about that taking that risk Um, and that it was really my decision whether it was, you know, I'd be responsible for it. And and not just the money, but looking like a twat if it failed as well. <laughs> I, You know, because it, it just seemed ridiculous. Like a lot of people ask me, but why would you open a bookshop when every other bookshop's closing? You know, why would you want to open a bookshop that's going to be open seven days a week when you've got young children? You know, why would you want to take on this massive beautiful old heritage building that will have huge outgoings when you don't know whether you can fill the space. You know, you want it to be a dedicated children's space, but how will you guarantee that that's going to happen? And I was like, I really don't know. I can't answer those questions, but um, I feel like it's like I've got the opportunity now to try it out. And if I go back into my old profession, I probably won't ever go take the risk again. Hmm. And then I had a friend um, that I was working with in Melbourne who was the same age as me. We'd been working kind of alongside each other for years over there. She'd done the same training as me. Um, She had a child the same age. And she got bowel cancer and was dead within a year. And it just really shook my world. Like even though I kind of thought, oh, yeah, that kind of thing happens to people when they're, reach middle age. I didn't feel middle-aged. I'm 41. I don't feel middle-aged, but, you know, you kind of fall in that demographic where people start getting cancer and strange illnesses. And so on a kind of intellectual level, you kind of think, yeah, that's kind of what happens at this age. But on an emotional level, I just really just got floored at the fact that she wasn't here anymore, that one day she's here and the next day she's not in this really quick demise and 
there's a little girl that's left without a mother. And she was telling me at the end that she had written a book for her little girl and it was about her relationship with her little girl and who she was and how special she was and, oh, so sad. Mm. (laughs) Anyway, she, um, yeah, she was talking to me about how important reading was to her little girl and how important stories were and how she used to read stories about loss and what happens when people die and she knew that she was going to die. And um, that really touched me anyway that that reading could be so important for that relationship and that experience for that little girl of who her mother was. So I remember standing in the um, empty space in the gallery in Paperbird before I took on the lease and I was just in there by myself. I'd been given the keys by the real estate agent to go and have a look hmm. and have a think about whether I wanted to take it on or not. And I was standing in the gallery and I got the call from another friend to say that she died. And I just sat down and I was like, oh, shit, you know. I thought, well, here I am, you know, 41 years old. Just got to live for now because you never know what's around the corner. Just got to throw your hat in the ring and um, hope it works. And if it doesn't Mm. work, at least you've tried it. So It's not Sophie's choice, is it? (laughs) No, it's kind of, you know, you create your own destiny. So... I thought, and I also wanted to kind of show my kids that, you know, women can do stuff too, that it's, Mm. you know, you can be um, creative and own a business and just be your own boss. You don't have to follow expectations and you don't have to follow your career path if you choose one thing. You don't have to continue doing that your whole life. If something feels right, you can make a change, but you have to realise, you know, that all those things lead up to that change and you can draw on that experience. So so I threw my hat in the ring and, you know, nearly two years down the track now and it's kind of been um, really hard work, but it's yeah. been But that point good. was... It's kind what, of, yeah, What made it point. really yeah. focused and clear. Yeah, it's just the timing of it was just extraordinary. I was just like, yeah, I can, you know... It's a critical point for sure of yeah direction change so where where did you get the name paper bird i wanted to call it bird because that's my um mother's maiden name it's our irish name my grandfather's name and um but i couldn't call it bird because bird has too much other businesses called bird and you know yeah. you can't get a license to do anything with emails and blah, blah, blah. i realized very quickly that i just couldn't call it bird books and it would be a bit naff anyway <laughs> it would wouldn't there's no kind of really strong image i guess and so i um i was down at the farm with my family and we um workshopped names associated with bird and we had all sorts of different names. And uh, um, the shop is on Henry Street. And so <laughs> Henry's Bird was one of them. But I was like, no, I can't have Henry's Bird because my husband's name's Henry and it just sounds really, really 
ridiculous. Um, and uh, I can't even remember the other names, but there were all sorts of different birds. Um, I think my sister-in-law came up with paper bird and it just stuck. just seemed to be the right, had all the right connotations and it sounded good. And um, But I get all sorts of kids have come up with other names that they call the shop because they can't read the sign or whatever. <laughs> they just, yes. Yeah, so they, you know, I've got one little boy that calls it the, the lemon bird and you know, they have their own names. But paper bird just felt right, hmm. yeah. So in the two years that you've you've been running Paperbot, but how has the uh, the vision and the focus of the shop and the space changed and refined refined as you've moved forwards? Um, it's certainly been an organic process. I haven't felt, and it's mainly been a time issue, I, an energy. I haven't been able to kind of impose. A real structure on the place. I haven't kind of said, other than putting the shop in the front mm. room, I haven't had the space to kind of go, well, this should be here and that should be there and this should be, you know, we need to have this type of artist here and we need to have that kind of service in there. It's, it was literally just people connecting with each other. I talked to people in the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators who, is the main hmm. children's writing body. And um, I talked to them about my ideas for the place being a dedicated kids' story house. And um, and a couple of them came forward and said, oh, you know, that really fits with what I want to do. I want to run um, kids' art workshops and um, so it would be great if I could have a studio and somebody else would say, I really want to, like, we could have exhibitions in this bigger room. We could make it into a gallery. And so it was really just about people approaching me. Mm-hmm. I didn't really go out and seek people too much. Right. Um, and then, and then I ended up having people come into the shop and say, Oh, you know, have you thought about having an occupational therapy service in that room? And oh, I wouldn't mind, you know, renting that room as a private clinic. And so I was like, oh, yeah. And I basically said yes to everything <laughs> just because I'm curious as to how that yeah, would work. And and on the whole, it's everything's worked really well. Um, and I suppose people are drawn to a place that have a certain personality or nostalgia or sentimentality for yeah. children's books or value children's books and and then really nice, interesting, creative people. And so – it just became a community hub for professionals in that respect. People just came and um, it's evolved. People have changed rooms and some things have worked better in one mm. spot than the other. And um, one of the other more strategic things we did was taking down the fences between our building and next door. So it's a big old um merchants residence with a big warehouse that's used by that's all owned by the city of Fremantle and the warehouse section is now run by the Fremantle Arts Centre as a gallery and has artist studios at the back for their residency program and then in the kind of 
laneway and courtyard is a cafe. And um, so in taking down the fences between our courtyard and their courtyard, um, it's allowed it to become more of an arts precinct, which is fantastic for us and for them, so that the cafe can overflow into our courtyard. Um, we put in a nature playground for the kids to mm. use. We can still close off the courtyards if we have private events or if they do, but it just means people can walk around the whole building um, and explore this great space. So much like that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, much like kids would, and it's but it's still contained. Like kids can't, you know, it's still really safe. They yes. can't run out onto the street and um, yeah. So it's been very organic, which kind of works in my with my personality. I'm not a particularly organised person. Right. Um, I tend to <clears throat> base my judgments more on instinct and relationships rather than on logic and nutting down the facts of the matter. <laughs> <laughs> I tend, I mean, yeah, I'm completely the opposite of my husband, which is Feel quite a nice thing. rather than think it through. Yeah, yeah. And fortunately that generally carries me over the line. Super. <laughs> How... Do you go about, for want of a better word, um, marketing or pulling out a point of difference for Paperbird, given what we were saying earlier on about the fact that you know, children's bookshops have, have closed and, and, and there is the ever-present online sales where because there's not a shop front and everything, overheads are lower so products can come a lot cheaper. How, how do you... Because you are going to have to, you do have to compete against that, but you have to also strike a difference. How, how do you go about that? I've never worked in retail before. Yeah. I've always worked in human services. And so I found that aspect of retail marketing and competition to be really tough and hard work and really frustrating and it just brings up really negative emotions in me. Mm. I don't feel like this kind of entrepreneurial drive that some people have to be competitive and the excitement of the, the competition, I find it really difficult. And so I find it, um, fortunately, in the, in the book industry, in, in bookshops, independent bookshops, people are really collegial. They're very supportive of each other. They don't have that kind of competitive edge. And so all of the other independent bookshops in Perth have been really friendly to me, really um, giving me all sorts of information and support and we support each other's events. So on that side, it's been great. Mm -hmm. But in terms of reaching out to customers who um, don't really maybe have experiences of living locally or valuing their community, local community and understanding the, the feedback loop that is around business. And if you buy local, then you've got services in your hood that yeah. you actually like having there. Um, then it's a battle like you've you feel like you're having to constantly educate people about that but the best way i found to educate people about that is 
just to demonstrate a level of service and um, relationship and um, intimacy of having a one-to-one experience of having a chat about a book, you know, that that they don't get from buying something online, that they can't get from buying something online. Mm. So and having children involved assist that because kids are very hands-on, experiential, and they love being in a space and they love the tactileness of mm. a physical book and choosing their own thing. So, so parents can see that they're enjoying that. If they can tolerate the chaos, the chaotic nature of it, and some parents can't tolerate being in a shop with their kids because they find it too stressful. Yeah. If they can tolerate that, they can see the joy in the kids that they will then choose to buy their books there. in a shop rather than on oh, a computer. Um, the difficulty is that institutions like schools, a lot of schools have got rid of their librarians because there was a move away from books. Some schools even got rid of their libraries. There seems to be that they're drawing back from that now and realising that libraries actually are important, Hmm. Um, particularly with kids, but it's harder to get that message out to institutions that they should still come and buy locally. It's a convenience and a resources issue for schools. Mm. So if they don't have much money to buy books anymore, then they will try and get the as many books as they can through really cheap online distributors. Mm. And I can't compete with that other than to show those institutions that we're more than a bookshop, that we are supporting our local writers and illustrators to develop their careers and to make more books locally and that the kids, if they bring them in and classes can come into Paperbird, can have contact with those people and mm. actually get so much more out of reading a book through seeing how they've done the illustrations and and how they tell their stories. Um, so I'm leaning on their judgment to, you know, if they buy their books from their local bookshop that supports their local authors, then they're getting more mm. bang for their buck. Yes. But that doesn't come naturally to me. I'm not a salesperson. So it's other than, you know, just really enjoying talking to people and, and showing them really beautiful things and mm. being a kind of curator of my space. Um, I'm more of an arts facilitator than a salesman, so it's it's bloody hard. But I, it's in some ways I, I know that people like um, there are people like, you know, the guy that owns readings who has isn't a salesman either, but he he you can once you get to a certain size, you can employ people who are yes. more like a salesperson, who who have that drive for the margins and the mm. yeah. So I think I have to stick with what I'm good at. <laughs> yes, until the point you reach a scale <laughs> and you can bring point. someone if in. If I do ever that. get to that scale, but you Wait, know, I have to Wait. enjoy. I have to enjoy what I'm doing, and I'm not. I, I learnt quite quickly that I wasn't going to be a traveling salesperson to all the schools I had an experience with a teacher where 
she'd been really friendly and asked my advice on what her class, what would be good books for her year six class to read. And I'd given her copies of my top four books that I thought would be excellent. And she'd taken away those books and read them. And then later on, I just visited the library and there were boxes of books of a class set from one of the overseas online distributors. And and I was just flabbergasted, absolutely flabbergasted as to how she could possibly think that was a good idea. You know, that it wasn't even like that she wasn't paying me the money that I thought was mine for doing the service. It was that 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 was a rational and polite thing to do, that, that, that she thought that that was okay. Yeah. I just could not get that. You know, like I just could, it's not economics, could not understand it's that she and, and I was so surprised that I actually just confronted her in front of um the admin staff. I was, because I wasn't like trying to, you know, make her feel awkward or anything, but I just said, What what's going on with getting the books from that online distributor when you know, when you'd asked my advice and um I'd given it to you and did you not think to have a chat to me about what you know what we could do if there was any she says it's really just about money it's just that I could get them cheaper through the online distributor and uh, (laughs) I just had to kind of walk away from that and just realize I mean I I just said to her look I think it's more about um supporting your local businesses and supporting your local authors and and um, places that support local literature rather than sending your money overseas. But, you know, and I, I thought I'm not going to waste my time with travelling around libraries and, and schools mm. and getting hugely frustrated at the system. Mm, so I guess it's more a case of this is me, this is what I'm doing, I'm going to send a signal out. If it brings people in, it brings people in. That's right. It doesn't. That's right. Do what you do good at. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, so so I focused on getting the message out through other forms of media, like we've just done a video, which is really amazing, of which just kind of goes through the whole building and shows what goes on and Mm. how people are using, you know, how the kids are loving the space and, who's working there and and all the different amazing programs we do. So it just gives people a sense that it isn't just a bookshop. There's so much else that goes on there and it's a community centre mm. and that kids are drawn from all over to do book clubs and art workshops and whatever, that it's a place of pleasure and happiness and hope and, mm. yeah. How do you see, um, so obviously there's the competition of, of your store against online stores, but then how do you see the competition of reading against for kids against uh, playing with the iPad, looking, playing on Netflix, watching the TV? I'm not so stressed about that. Like I, I don't. Um, I think it's up to parents and teachers to develop a love for reading, and so it's about you know keeping that alive. But I think most parents do recognise the importance of reading to their kids for literacy. And um, 
and there's certainly um, developmental stages that are particularly hard to crack in terms of getting kids away from screens, um, particularly when the kids go to high school and you get your own personal device and you do all your learning through your device and you don't get any textbooks even. Mm. So it's kids are on screens way too much at that point. But um, statistics show that kids are still loving books and mm. they're, yeah, the, the, the industry is strong despite the arrival of, of screen time. Hmm. More passive information devices rather than active information. Yeah, and not just passive but um, perpetual, like they're just ongoing. Like you you have a book and there's a beginning, middle and end. Mm. When you're on Netflix or whatever, there's no, you know, you watch your program and then you finish. Mm. There's, it's, there's, there's too much there on offer yes. for you to switch off. So you don't like when we were watching television as kids, you don't get to your end of your show, Doctor Who, and then there's a completely different genre and you have to switch off like, yeah. because that's the end of your show and you go and do something else. Kids don't contained, have that yeah. now. They can just continue on or their game just mm. leads on and they don't want, you know, they're, they're developed. The games are developed to never stop. Yes. So kids don't have that sense of beginning, middle and end so much in terms of contained mm. stories or whatever. But, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty hopeful actually mm. about literature still being really important in kids' lives and books being important in kids' lives. I think there's also something there. I mean, you know, I, I'm 43. Um, I didn't have the internet at university, so I had to go and, print off microfiches and then I used to have to physically sit there and read and, you know, take notes and what have you. And I think there's still part of me that struggles to fully take information on board from reading it off a screen. And, you know, I'm probably one of my um, open spots of where I'm not environmentally friendly at work is where, you know, if I've got a report to read, I'm, it I'm, I have to print it off. And I have to physically engage with it. Yeah. I mean, I'm quite an aesthetic person, but I physically engage with it. I have to have a pen and I'm writing stuff and this, that, and the other. And, you know, I see a lot of kids that are very similar. They're, they need to be physically involved in a book, gives them mm. something tangible mm. to look at and mm. turn the pages of and, and what have you. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's such a different world now. It is. It's, it's just for, like so For the better fast. or worse? It's so fast. Oh, look, there's pros and cons on there. I think we're doomed. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're doomed, are we? I think, I mean, I think we're, it's, yeah, I'm a pretty, I, I feel like I'm a fairly realistic about the fact that we're destroying our planet faster than we realise. And, um, yeah, that's pretty scary stuff. Mm. But... And I guess that's why I like working with kids because they always seem to have a sense of hope and that they're going to save the world and Things that's nice. Right. right. <laughs> it's nice to immerse yourself in that joy. <laughs> so, is there, so is there a part of this which is you connecting with your childhood and that hope and optimism? Yeah. 
yeah, I'm, I'm, I tend to be an optimistic person, even though I feel like the evidence is pretty clear. Um, on our current trajectory. On our current tra- trajectory and the fact that our current leadership isn't pushing us off that trajectory. But, um, yeah, hopefully next generation will um, make some changes. Mm. Yeah, and look back at our generation and think, you idiots, what, are you, <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> yeah. Super. Um, how much of your the early part of your uh, working with kids mental health do you actually you know, draw on with what you do and create a, in the paper bird space? And how do you a see lot, the link between art and mental health and reading? I tend to be um, fairly indulgent with my selection of books um, to reflect what I think is important in kids' mental health. So not having and what sort of things would you be looking for in a book? Um, a spectrum of of happy, light, dark books. I, I feel like it's really important for kids to be read books that have a spectrum of emotion and and that have um, real issues in them, you mm. know, that kids have to cope with. So I love um, people like Neil Gaiman and Patrick Ness and um, Oliver Jeffers and people who mm. can capture um, sadness and loneliness and grief and joy and and be able to represent them in a in a beautiful in beautiful language or beautiful pictures to um, resonate with kids. If I just stuck to the top twenty bestsellers or you know the top hundred bestsellers, I wouldn't have that spectrum of right. You know because parents and kids tend to buy nice fluffy books if they get the opportunity because it's just you know they want pleasure i mean it's like movies you know you often get the feel good movies are important but it's also important to see the more challenging mm. movies to kind of develop bring more, stuff up in you yeah yeah awareness of what's going on in the world um but i think and i think i'm getting a bit of a name for myself in that i stock a lot of books about dying for instance yeah yeah, so I did a show on Radio National which talked about it was for Palliative Care Week and I was talking about great books for reading to kids about death and dying. And um, so, yeah, so now I stop quite a big spectrum of yeah. that. So, And, and, and I, I guess with all, every family that comes in, I am – not psychoanalyzing them, but I am looking for how they're attuned to each other and mm. what, you know, I just, I'm interested in that. Like, so it's, so I try and um, make connections with the child more than the parents when yes. the kids come in. Um, because I think that kids often don't get that when they go into a yeah. shop or, Um, a place, any kind of adult space. So I want to make it really kids-focused and that means talking to the kids. (laughs) Yeah, so I guess that's interesting because if you can pick up where a child is at, then you can direct them to the book that's relevant to them rather than 
and pointing the mum and dad in the direction of, oh, buy this book. Cause, you know, mm. So it's mm. more, that's interesting. That. And for me, it's There's always been about modelling behaviour. So if I'm talking to the kids about what they like and, you know, what their reaction is to something or the character or what they've read, then the parents are watching that and then they hopefully will engage at that level as well about their kids reading or and I also talk to them a lot about the fact that I read <clears throat> to all my kids no matter what age, you know, so I'm still reading to my 11-year-old and I hope to still read to her when, you know, throughout her life, you know, I think it's really important to keep reading to people no matter how old they are, you know, that it, there's a relationship that you build with reading a book to somebody, mm. it's really a nice kind of shared experience and you can talk about what's going on and it makes you more conscious about a book. So if you read a book to yourself, you might just have your own feelings about it, but if you read it to someone else, you're picking up on what they're feeling about it and it's a different experience. Yeah. So I like that stuff. That's awesome. Mm. Awesome. A couple of questions about mm. Jen before we... Mm. finish this um what's something that we might find surprising about you given everything that we've heard oh surprising mm. i think everything else fits with my character doesn't it stubborn <laughs> um love family um Hmm. Oh, it's a tricky one. I need to find more surprising things about myself. <laughs> I always assume that everyone kind of knows exactly. I feel like I've got it all painted on my face with my personality. Right. Um, yeah. I like a good fight. I'm a provocateur, I guess. I, I do get into um, into um, choosing sometimes the harder way in, in life. You know, I, I do tend to take on a more challenging kind of thing because it just I'm curious about what's, what's going to happen. I don't know. I just kind of. Um, I like to challenge myself, I guess, and and I like to um, I like to tease people, I suppose. What is it about the teasing? I just think it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just think I just think you know it um, helps people not to be so serious I, or so I get into trouble with people in authority because I tend to kind of um tease them a bit about what they do and um and then um yeah just to try and be a bit more human I'm talk too much probably and I don't know you know I, I had three older brothers they taught me well <laughs> 
Excellent. <laughs> if you could go back to um, if you could go back to Jen when she first started out in child um, mental health and welfare, what yeah. piece of advice would you give her now as she's about to start her journey? Slow down, I guess. <laughs> Slow down. <laughs> tend to be, yeah. I tend, I, I think everybody probably does grasp a bit too much at new things and just slow down and enjoy what you've got. Right. Awesome. And finally, for the mother out there that's listening to this, that now has, has been a full-time mum and, and time is opening out because her kids are now going to primary school and she's thinking, should I go back to what I did? Oh, I've got this idea. It's, it's only a fledgling idea. What piece of advice would you, would you give to that person? I've had lots of other mums come up to me and say, you know, you did it. So what, you know, what, well, anyone can do it. I think anyone can, you know, recreate themselves and reimagine themselves. I guess my advice would be not to not to ditch your past life and, and um, to draw on those experiences and make them, you know, recreate them rather than become a completely think that you're going to become a completely different person because I don't think you can necessarily. Hmm change everything i think it's i think everything builds on top of each other and you just end up in a different spot but to take risks i think is really important in life to be brave <laughs> because but then not to feel like it's all counting on that like i have to keep reminding myself that it's just one thing in your life that you've taken a big risk on if it doesn't work out, you've still got all this other stuff that's really good. <laughs> yes. And so your your personality and your character and everything isn't dependent on that risk. Mm. And your sense of identity. And your sense of identity and that it's okay to fail and, you know, at the end of the day, it's okay as long as you keep being loyal to the people that you need to be loyal to and love and, yeah. Awesome stuff. Well, Jen, thank you very much for taking the time to come and, and talk Pleasure. to me today. Um, I super appreciate how open and honest you've been with your whole journey, um, with your thought process behind it, and sharing yourself as well in, in, the, in, in the process of that. I wish you every success with, with Paperbird. It sounds awesome. I've been there. I know it's awesome. I've taken my daughter there. Um, so yeah, thank you very much. I'd also like to acknowledge the listeners and, and thank you for taking the time to listen to this. Um, there's stacks and stacks in this journey and in this story that I, I think you can take away and be inspired from. Um, look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you very much, Jen. Thank you.